Today's Dead Idea, this is part four of our series on Byzantine court eunuchs, and today we are looking at sex. Believe it or not, eunuchs could have sex, and were often looked at as lascivious sex fiends, paradoxically at the same time that others consider them to be sexless angels. And today, we are reading stories about the sex lives of Byzantines for what they can tell us about eunuchs in the Queen of Cities, Byzantium. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westoff, my lovely wife, who was always confused by that old 80s commercial jingle, Almond Joy Has Nuts, Mounds Don't. Because she was always like, if mounds don't have nuts, then what's the mound? <laughs> hey, <laughs> wait. That's a good point. <laughs> and similarly, listeners, you might also be forgiven for being confused about eunuchs and sex. If they don't have nuts, then... Sometimes you feel like a... <laughs> Sometimes you... <laughs> exactly. Now, so you would think, like, bearded men have sex, eunuchs don't, right? But actually, that's just not true. And today we are going to learn all about their Fifty Shades of Grey. Here to help us do that are, once again, our co-hosts of the series, Anna. Lasciviousness. And Nick. Suspiciously beardless. Mm-hmm. It is sex in the city today, but we are not just going to be talking about eunuchs. In fact, only a few of our stories today touch on eunuchs explicitly. There's just not that much Actually, in the literature. Don't they all touch on eunuchs explicitly, the ones about eunuchs? Well, not all of what we get in the literature talks directly about sex lives of eunuchs. Right. So all the stories are about explicit touching, but they're not all about explicit touching with eunuchs. Yes, that okay. is correct. But all of them are about sex in the Byzantine Empire, and we, will, and we will be looking at how that reflects on the world that eunuchs lived in. Nothing hotter than a Venn diagram. Let's overlap, baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the stories today will run the gamut of Byzantine society from eunuchs to saints to empresses, but we will relate all of them back to eunuchs in the end. Also of note, Although our stories today will come from all different kinds of texts, a lot of what we know of sex for the Byzantines comes actually, believe it or not, from religious invectives against it. Because there's this whole thing about the Byzantines, and you know how like uh, Victorian England, you think of them as being so prudish about sex until you dig a little bit deeper and then it turns out they were totally obsessed with it? Well, it seems like the Byzantines kind of had something like that going on too. There's all these religious invectives against this or that, but it kind of, the sum total of it gives you the impression like this shit had to be going on all the time well, for them to be this fire. crazy about it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah. So to some extent, we are going to be reading against the grain today, reading these, some of them will be invectives against these sexual practices uh, but we'll be reading against the grain to find out what sex lives were like. And believe it or not, Byzantines of the time, I imagine, were probably also reading these religious texts against the grain for their fun bits. <laughs> because believe it or not, the most popular literature of the time were hagiographies, or like the lives of saints, mm -hmm. right? That's what a hagiography yeah. is, right? Yeah. It, yeah. Stories of the lives of saints. And these were surprisingly chalk full of sex. Why would that be? 
Well, I mean... you can sneak it onto the bus that way. Because you can sneak... <laughs> no, Mom, I'm reading about the lives of the saints. Yeah. No, it's, it's because sex sells. And you want people to read your hagiography hey, of saints' lives, so how do you get them to do that? You sprinkle in a little bit of the uh, the little special sauce. Yeah, so for example, the hagiography hey, of Saint Maria of Egypt begins with her early life as a profligate woman. Mm-hmm. And ended with her being covered in hair. <laughs> Did it? Yeah, have you seen the iconography? She's furry. Is naked, she? naked and furry, head to toe. She's oh. living her best life. Yeah. As a crazed fur yeah. woman in the desert. Interesting. I did not it, it, know it's, that. It's really that's, cute. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's even more interesting than what I was going to say. What I was going to say was it begins with her life as a profligate woman, showing her approach a group of 10 or more young men standing on the shore, and she says to them, take me wherever you are going. There is zero chance you won't like what I have to offer. <laughs> mm, multi-level marketing is really yeah. awful exactly mm -hmm. and then the author makes her say oh man how could i even tell you what happened then what tongue can speak what ears can bear to listen to what happened on that ship motion on the ocean <laughs> exactly this boat's rocking the things that i made those wretches do even if before they were unwilling i was their teacher in every kind of depravity both speakable and unspeakable. Octopus. It's got to be octopus. Now, here's the thing, right? Why would they go into that level of suggestive detail, right? Like, why even put that idea in your head? Well, it's because sex sells, right? Even though you're writing about the lives of saints, sex sells. Same then as it is today. So, as we read against the grain today, we can feel like we are true Byzantines doing the same. This is sort of that thing like in True Detective, when for no readily apparent reason, there's an obligatory sex scene in the middle of the investigation. It's like, okay, yeah, that's Woody Harrelson. Great. <laughs> yep. With all the cable shows, really, I think. Yep. Yeah, but really broke up the narrative flow there for me. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that was the same for hagiographies. Anyway, we're going to do this in our usual style. I've got a list of stories, and I'm going to let you guys choose which ones you want to hear first. I have five stories to choose from today, and here are your choices. Choice number one, the Marilyn Monroe effect. Mm. Choice number two, the knife of reason. Mm. Number three, when thoughts wander. Number four, tongue-tied and taken for a ride. <laughs> I think we probably have a winner. <laughs> yes, chicken dinner. <laughs> and number five, off-Broadway. Yeah, no, no, number four. Tongue-tied and taken for a ride? Yeah. Indeed. Okay, here we go. Dear Penthouse. <laughs> Tongue-tied and taken for a ride. So eunuchs were capable of sex even if they were castrated before puberty, believe it or not, because, of course, they could use other parts of their body than just their junk. Because right. you could get an erection if you were if you already experienced puberty, right? That's the... the the cutoff, right? Right. Because you have mature genitalia, right? But even if you had never mature genitalia, you can pleasure a woman or a man in other ways. And we know that the Byzantines practiced sex in all different ways, in large part due to detailed ecclesiastical discussions of practices to be blamed. So already we're seeing uh, how the uh, religious invectives teach us a whole lot about what went on behind closed doors. The following comes from the 12th century Commentaries on the Canons by Balsamon the Chartophylax. 
Whoa. <laughs> is that a, like a snuffleupagus? <laughs> I don't know. It's my new favorite title ever. Totally. Apparently yeah. it means cleric in charge of official documents and records. Chartophylax. Well, I know what tree I'm taking in my build for a cleric. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. The theological issue at stake in Balsaman's invective here is whether a priest should celebrate the liturgy after defiling his lips. So, he writes, What exactly defiles his lips? Dick! Some, <laughs> some say it is when a man has committed the sin of passionately and erotically kissing a woman. Others say that people who are passionately inflamed by sexual fire use female genitals as a drinking cup and, oh desecration, drink from it that abominable drink thereby defiling their lips. That's how you get yeast infections. Others say that some, driven mad by sexual lust, actually rain kisses on the female shameful part, and they are not ashamed, but even say, our lips are our friends. Who will be the boss of us? Woo! <laughs> Co-signed! Wait. Yeah, so that's, that's not that veiled in terms of language, right? That's, uh... <laughs> That's pretty pretty much straight out there. Can you passionately so, not eat, not but not erotically kiss a woman? I mean, really, where were they going with that first one? Just like mechanically, without passion. No, passionately but not erotically. <laughs> oh god! Like, like Cookie Monster. It. <laughs> cookie Monster. Oh, yeah, what? <laughs> He's very passionate. I guess, I guess actually his cookie thing is kind of erotic. Well, are we talking about like? <laughs> anyway, Balsaman goes on to note various names for a woman's bits. Hmm. He calls them variously myrtle lips, eh? drop-offs, hmm? and flaps. Well. <laughs> Finally, he says that many who write erotic songs say that these parts gape and spit at you and grow large when placed on a tongue. Gape and spit. Hmm? I don't know. To me, it spit? sounds like he's describing clams. Your ladies are kind of infected there. Possibly camels. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that gives a pretty clear indication that the Byzantines definitely knew how to love a woman by the love and spoonful. There's nothing stopping a eunuch from doing the same. But let's not stop there. There are more ways for a eunuch to have sex and more people to have sex with. So what about sex with men? There's a whole complicated context to this. First of all, as we've seen in Byzantine culture, your choice of sexual partner was not primarily what defined you in terms of being a sexual being. It, didn't, it wasn't an identity thing. They didn't have the category gay in the same way that we have that category gay. Having sex with another man was like a discrete act rather than your identity. And although people might have various opinions about that act, it just it didn't define you as a person. It was action, it was. not orientation. Exactly. Okay. Second... We know that sex between men was fairly common among late Roman and Byzantine people, as there was a special tax that was levied on male prostitutes. Legally speaking, there may have been an old Roman law against sex between men, but it was rarely enforced, nor were any such laws enforced in the Byzantine Empire, with only one major exception that's worth going into, though. And that comes from the reign of Justinian. Justinian decreed that men who engaged in sex with other men should have their entire junk cut off, both the Franks and the Beans. Yikes. Um, in contrast to how eunuchs are usually produced in the Byzantine world. The almond joy and the mounts. 
Exactly. <laughs> and then they were paraded through the streets in disgrace. However, Procopius, the historian that we're getting this from, tells us of curious circumstances that make one wonder if it was really a crackdown aimed at sex between men at all. He says that those punished were not those who committed the act after the law, but actually only those who committed it before the law in the past. Moreover, normal legal procedures were circumvented. Men were convicted without requiring a formal accuser, based only on the testimony of a single man, boy, or even a slave. And finally, the punishment was not meted out on everyone, but mainly just on the wealthy. Oh, there we go. I was wondering if it was that. Yep. Gotta build the Hagia Sophia somehow. Yep. Those who had offended the emperor or empress, or those who were known to be Greens, Green being one of those two uh, prominent... Factions. Yep, the mm -hmm. chariot race, fan clubs, cum political parties. So this really seems to change the picture quite a bit. As you seem to be picking up on it, Anna. What do you think is going on here? Well, I mean, you're enforcing arbitrarily a rule against people who you actually can get money from. And a big thing that was going on with both the revision of various codes under Tribonian and... Uh, John the Cappadocian was, hey, we got to get some money in the coffers. So if you target the wealthy. Exactly. Right. So, yeah, you just kind of like come up with an excuse to go after him. Oh, at one point in the past, it was rumored by someone, maybe a boy, maybe just a slave that you had sex with a man. Great. Come on in. <laughs> and it might even be politically easier to sell than an additional tax. As... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. It's too. like the city of St. Paul's snow emergency parking enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, it's a big revenue raiser, and you can say. <laughs> For people outside of Minnesota, oh, God. like if it snows in the winter, you can only park on one side of the street, and if you park on the wrong side, you get ticketed, and therefore and you get a fine, therefore the city gets money from you. The sides switch day by day, and yeah. this usually starts happening at, like, the middle of the night, two days after it snows. The rules are Byzantine in the they popular are, sense of the word. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Regional color. So, yeah, so what this seems to suggest is that the Byzantine attitude toward sex between men, even despite a major crackdown like this, might really not have been that negative at all. This seems like just... There might have been some minor negativity, probably coming from, like, church attitudes about it, that was exploited in this case for political reasons. But if you had no money and you were dudes plowing each other, you were probably safe? You're probably safe. Yep. In any case, after Justinian, this law was no longer paid any attention to, and once again, sex between men was more or less common. Anyway, however, the thing about sex between men that did make a big difference was your role in the encounter. What was not accepted in Byzantine society was taking the passive role, i.e. being the bottom. What if you were a power bottom? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they got into that much nuance. Hmm. <laughs> Everybody still liked Julius Caesar. Good point. <laughs> World's most famous power bottom. Hmm. <laughs> but they made the jokes, so... Yeah. Anyway, this went contrary to late Roman and Byzantine concepts of masculinity, that is, being a bottom did. And so it was ripe for ridicule. And since eunuchs castrated before puberty could only be bottoms, you can imagine what that did for the reputation of eunuchs in general. On the other hand, the church took a different view still. Sodomy, whether 
top or bottom, and I call it sodomy because that's like that's how they thought of it. Whether top or bottom was condemned, but to varying degrees, and not how you would necessarily expect from what we just heard. Being a bottom, in the eyes of the church, was actually seen as less sinful. Sure. According to Byzantine historian Anthony Caldellus, confessional manuals of the time delineated three degrees of sex between men. And this is quoting Caldellus, not the actual mm-hmm. text. Doing it, having it done to one, which was not as bad, and both together, which was the worst. So it seems perhaps the difference is because at least the one... Well, you seem to have picked up on it, Nick. Do you want to say what you think it is? Oh. Matter of consent, largely, I would think, to an extent. Okay, okay, consent, maybe. I don't, maybe it's just me, but I don't think it's like the medieval church is being that worried about consent issues, but more about what thoughts are doing. That's what I meant by consent. Oh, okay. Your actual personal consent to the action. Oh, like assent in the philosophical sense. Yes. Okay, so like assenting to the desire. And acting on it, that's the more aggressive act. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's where I was going with it, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically the difference is um, the one who's in the passive role might not be acting on their own desire, but the one who's in the active role, although more masculine, is almost certainly acting on their own desire and therefore is the greater sinner. Yeah. Yeah. So that fills out quite a bit of context for the kind of sex lives that eunuchs were likely to lead in the Byzantine Empire, particularly if they were castrated before puberty and lacked fully developed genitalia. So that is tongue-tied to take it for a ride. (laughs) All right, so we've got four more stories that you can choose from. Your other choices are the Marilyn Monroe effect, the knife of reason, when thoughts wander, or off-Broadway. I'm curious about off-Broadway. Yeah, let's let's go from there. Off-Broadway? Okay. Off-Broadway. So eunuchs were not employed only in the courts of the emperor and the wealthy. They became fairly common throughout society. One of the other roles that they often took was in the theater. Anyone familiar with the Italian castrati will probably not be so surprised by this, for those castrated before puberty tend to retain a high, soft, prepubescent voice, you know, as you think of with the castrati, capable of hitting those highest, you know, soprano notes, that kind of thing. And of course, that would make you great in the theater. What may be surprising is the context of the theater in the late Roman and Byzantine periods. Performances were often quite lewd, such that it was deemed improper for decent, quote-unquote, women to attend theater at all. Furthermore, there was no clear distinction between performer and prostitute. If you were one, you were just assumed to be the other, basically. It was simply assumed that after the show, you could go up to a star and inquire about his or her services. And presumably, this extended to eunuchs in the theater as well. It's kind of like on Twitter when people keep on asking you for drawings, you know? (laughs) Do you have that problem? Other people have. (laughs) Not me for some reason. (laughs) It's a phenomenon that has been complained about. Mm, I see. Anyway, uh, we have no detailed accounts of eunuch actors, unfortunately, but we do have an extremely detailed, one might say even excessively detailed, account of one particular actress. Oh, boy. (laughs) You know what's coming. Mm -hmm. We have this because despite her humble origins, she was destined to become the most powerful woman in the empire, and she was, of course, 
Theodora. Empress Theodora, mm -hmm. co-ruler with Justinian I. She became powerful indeed, but was not necessarily well-loved by all. Having a woman exert such influence as empress, greater even than that of a eunuch, since eunuchs at least could not ascend to the purple, was simply too much to bear for some people. And for this reason, presumably, Procopius wrote the secret history as an extended invective against Justinian's supposed corruption by Theodora. That and other reasons, but that, I think, was probably a big one. He had some grudges. He had some grudges. True to his slanderous intent, Procopius spares no detail in describing uh, Theodora's early life before her rise to the throne when she was a lowly actress in the theater. Here we go. Yep. <laughs> we may assume that what is said of her here, though likely quite exaggerated, gives us at least some hint of what the life of a theater performer, man, woman, or eunuch, might have been like. After introducing Theodora's actress mother and sisters, Procopius tells us, As soon as she reached puberty and was ripe enough, she joined the women on the stage and immediately became a call girl in her own right. She belonged to the lowest rank, which in the old days they called basic infantry. Halt and catch fire. For she had no skill with the aulos, which is a musical instrument, some kind of flute, I think, right? I think so. Was it the one with, like, two flutes That's that you play it? picturing, but yeah. I'm not sure that I'm right. Nor could she sing or even perform in the dance troupe. All she had to offer to passing customers was her youth, and she put her whole body to work for them. Later, she took up full time with the mimes in the theater. Mimes? God! <laughs> <laughs> Taking part in their performances by providing backup vulgarity for the comedians. Presumably what they were miming was, uh, yep, <laughs> exactly what you're thinking. <laughs> Back up that vulgarity. <laughs> For she had an especially quick and biting wit and soon became a star feature of the show. There was no shame at all in her, and no one ever saw her embarrassed. She would provide shameful services without the slightest hesitation and was of such a sort that if someone slapped her or even punched her full in the face, she would crack a joke about it and then burst out laughing. She sounds fun. <laughs> she does. He continues, she would strip down in front of any passers-by and then in back as well, revealing in the nude those parts which custom forbids to be shown to men. She would joke with her lovers lying around in a bed with them, and by toying with new sexual techniques constantly managed to arouse the souls of those who were debauched. Again, this sounds fun. <laughs> I know, right? Uh -huh. Nor did she wait for her customers to make the first pass at her. Quite the contrary, she herself tempted all who came along, flirting and suggestively shaking her hips, especially if they were beardless youths. Actually, wait, now I think I've been to parties with this person. It's very <laughs> less fun. <laughs> Never has there been a person so enslaved to lust in all its forms. She often went to the potluck dinner parties in the company of ten young escorts, or even more than that, all at the peak of their physical prowess and skilled at screwing, and that's how it's written in there. Yeah. I don't know who did the translation. But... I've been wondering, the call girl and screwing. I, it seems I know, a there's little... a lot of like modern kind of phrasing. Or even but... not quite modern. I don't think this is the same yeah. translation I read, but I remember call girl yeah. being okay. used a lot. This was the Penguin edition. So whoever oh, okay. Well, was, I, did yeah. I could look it up. Yeah. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. And she would bed down with her fellow diners in groups all night long. 
Ooh, getting it on on the hot dish. You know, it's <laughs> funny, though. I remember somebody saying something about this uh, documentary about lifestyle and swinging and how one of the weird things was there was an entire um, table in the background full of potluck hot dish. Yeah. This kind of makes me think it is real. Yeah. <laughs> and by, with, by the way, with all these hot dish jokes, it seems like we're talking more about sex in Minnesota than anything else. <laughs> Sorry, but... <laughs> no. Nothing that interesting. Yes. Sex on a casserole for the rest of you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cover me in macaroni and ground beef. <laughs> oh, stuff another ham sandwich where a ham sandwich shouldn't go. <laughs> oh, well, two cans of cream of mushroom soup, you pervert. Oh, God. Rainbow Cello salad all over. <laughs> oh, it's so... Oh, it's getting in the carpet. Oh, God. Okay, enough already. I'm feeling uh, overly Minnesotan. Anyway... And when all were exhausted from doing this, she would turn to their servants, all 30 of them, if that's how many there were, and couple with each of them separately. But even this would not satisfy her lusts. It's good cardio, though. I'm sure. I'm sure it was. She got her 30 minutes in. Mm -hmm. One time, when she went to the house of a notable to entertain during drinks, they say that when the eyes of all the diners were upon her, she mounted the frame of the couch by their feet and unceremoniously lifted up her clothes right there and then, not caring in the least that she was making a spectacle of her shamelessness. Even though she put three of her orifices to work, she would impatiently reproach nature for not making the holes in her nipples bigger than they were so that she could devise additional sexual positions involving them as well. Don't worry, the internet and deviantart has got you covered there. <laughs> she was often pregnant, but by using almost all known techniques, she could induce immediate abortion. See, she's not an irresponsible mother, at least. At least. Often in the theater, too. And with the entire populace as her audience, she would strip and stand naked at the very center of attention, having only a loincloth about her genitals and groin. Not that she would have been ashamed to flaunt those before the whole city, too, but only because it was not permitted for anyone to be entirely naked in the theater, that is, without a loincloth about the groin. Wearing this outfit, then, she would lie down on her back and spread herself out on the floor, whereupon certain menials, who were hired to do this very job, would sprinkle barley grains all over her genitals, and then geese, which were trained for this very purpose, pecked them off one at a time with their beaks and ate them. Bullshit, that's made up. <laughs> Passionately, but not erotically. Dude, From no one no one is going no woman, no debauched woman of any variety is going to let a goose get near your junk. Women in the middle of those orgies and why eyes wide shut would not let a geese close to that. You've seen those beaks. <laughs> what if the what if it was female geese? No, 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 no. Geese. Horrible beady eyes, little ribbed Horror mouths, hissing wings, no. Well, at least it would pass the Bechtel test? People who give it up for Cthulhu wouldn't let a goose near that. <laughs> to be fair, they did say specially trained, they might have trimmed the beaks. No, that's worse. <laughs> then you've got a mutilated goose who's got nothing left to lose. <laughs> so anyway, that is the greatly exaggerated, probably largely fictitious, intentionally slanderous, but perhaps kernel of truth having kind of lifestyle of a Byzantine theater performer. So what do we learn from this? Well, first of all, we even if we assume that large parts of this are pure straight-up fiction, it illustrates at minimum how associated the theater was with sex, and eunuch actors would have been no less implicated. Second, we learn the only modesty laws regarding theatrical dress are that the groin must be covered, 
which is interesting considering that the main thing that you might want to peek at for a eunuch would be off limits to see. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you couldn't actually display your literal eunuchhood. Right. Added air of mystery. Exactly, right? Third, we do learn that the Byzantines got it on in no fewer ways than we do today. Put three of her orifices to work at least makes it pretty clear that they knew about all kinds of different ways to, to get it on. So, And that Procopius was an angry, horny man. <laughs> anyway, if Procopius had DVDA in his vocabulary, I'm sure he would have used it. <laughs> um, eunuchs would have put all their parts to work as well. And finally, and this one takes a little bit of interpretation, but personally, I get the strong feeling that there are whole swaths of Byzantine society that are really just pretty blasé about sex. If this scene was to be in any way believable to Procropius's readers, then I think that there had to be a fair amount of this kind of thing going on all the time. Maybe not to this extent, but, you know, it had to be believable that, you know, this wasn't just absolute fiction if he was actually going to scandalize anybody, right? I have um, the impression that, like, Hollywood Babylon doesn't go into that kind of detail. Yeah. <laughs> For all the church condemnation and political slander, I am guessing that beneath it all, there was a general populace that was just kind of, you know, they would just kind of roll their eyes at all that and kind of approach sexual expression with kind of a shrug and a meh, you know, just like, yeah, that's, you know, what we were born for. And um, kind of like how a lot of us are today with a lot of internet porn, you know, it's just pretty much a wide open fact of life now. Um, www.geeseofhell.com Yeah, you just don't do it in the absolute, you know, you just don't do it completely out in public, and after that, it's pretty much just kind of fine. So, at the end of the day, you know, we all crack jokes about two girls, one cup, and but then we just go on with our lives. And I imagine that Byzantines were doing the same thing. www.goosleuths.tumblr.com <laughs> Right. So that's the attitude that I personally think a eunuch in the theater would have encountered most of the time from most people, even if they were occasionally targeted by churchmen or political dipshits. So that is Off-Broadway. What we have left is the Marilyn Monroe effect, the knife of reason, and when thoughts wander. See, I was pretty convinced the Marilyn Monroe effect was going to be Geese and Theodora. I'm kind of surprised. I thought that was going to be Off-Broadway. Yeah, well, okay. What do we want? Knife okay. of Reason. Knife of Reason. All right. Okay. The Knife of Reason. I think this is a shorter one. The Knife of Reason. While eunuchs were widely regarded as lascivious sexual beings, paradoxically, they were also regarded as pure, chaste, and passionless. But even in the latter case, they still couldn't get a break. In the eyes of the church, whose monks often fought hard to maintain a chaste lifestyle, the celibacy of eunuchs was of a lesser kind. Janos Klamakos explains why in the 7th century treatise, Ladder to Heaven. He says, Some bless those who are physically eunuchs as being free from the tyranny of the body. But I instead bless those who choose to be eunuchs on a daily basis, for they are able to dismember themselves by wielding the knife of reason. I have seen men who lapsed against their will, and men who want to lapse but are unable to do so. In other words, what he's saying is eunuchs might be celibate, but only because they can't have sex, right? Those who can have sex, but don't make better ascetics because they fought and won against temptation. Some churchmen went even further. 
Basileos, the 4th century bishop of Ankara, writes in On the True Purity of Virginity, They use their lack of testicles as a way to seduce women deceitfully and shamelessly have sex with them. Whereas a natural man spends his seed and his desire then withers, the man who cannot empty that which is tickling him on the inside is aroused and rages again as soon as he has performed the first time. Mm. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what were we saying about reading against the grain there? Uh (laughs) I mean, I could imagine myself being, you know, like a medieval Byzantine woman and being like, oh, church father. Yes. Say that one more time. Mm. What did you say about what kind of men were those that were so sinful? More than, more than two minutes. Interesting. And, and what part of the city can they be found in? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, eunuchs just can't get a break here. Not only is their celibacy lesser, but even their desire is or is imagined to be worse. Now, like I said, reading against the grain, if it's not just a pure imagination on the part of these church fathers, uh, and it is true that eunuchs could maintain their sexual libido longer. I'm not so sure about that. But if it is true, I mean, wow, how awesome is that? From a modern sex-positive perspective, that's like a freaking superpower, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, sign me up. Eh, maybe not. <laughs> but yeah. Okay, so we now we have uh, the Marilyn Monroe effect or When Thoughts Wander. I want to hear about Thoughts Wander. When Thoughts Wander. Yeah. Very good. We'll save Marilyn Monroe for the end. So When Thoughts Wander. The position that eunuch holy men found themselves in must have been awkward in the extreme. In addition to the normal restrictions on lustful thoughts, they were doubly plagued due to what we might today call something like stereotype threat. Are you guys familiar with what that is? Stereotype threat? Oh, pretend I'm a listener that's not. Okay. (laughs) Well, okay, So, so stereotype threat is where if you are a minority and you are reminded of your minority status then an anxiety can be produced that causes you to act out these stereotype in this weird psychological kind of way. So, for example, it's been shown like in this like large-scale studies of African-Americans taking tests that if you ask them what their race is at the beginning, before they take the test as opposed to after, then on average, you'll see like a, a drop in points on the score. And the explanation is supposedly that the stereotype is that African-Americans are less intelligent and something about this weird psychology kind of causes them to live that out in a weird way. Sort of chokes you. Yeah, yeah you, yeah, you kind of choke. Yeah. So to apply that to eunuchs, they definitely had a way that they're perceived in Byzantine society. They had a stereotype about them of them being lascivious sex fiends. And so that had to be like a double threat for them as they're trying to live like a true celibate life as a monk or a priest, right? It'd be interesting to just, you know, think how does that affect the psychology of someone who's, you know, trying to live out that kind of life. So the following snippet comes from a letter by the monk Paulos Haladikos, who is reporting the experience of a eunuch monk named Eutropius, who is plagued by desires. Specifically, he becomes infatuated with his 10-year-old godson. Ew. I know. But he holds himself back. But it's just, you know, this is what's going on inside, right? Now, these are not the actual words of Eutropius himself. Paulos presents them as his words. But 
there are no texts that we get where that's actually written by eunuchs. Sure. So this is the closest we get to that. A bearded man reporting the words of a eunuch. Okay? So, Paulos has Eutropius say, Do not be amazed that a eunuch feels lust. For scripture says that a eunuch can deflower a virgin girl. That surprised me. Supposedly it comes from Sirach 20, verse 4? I am i don't know. <laughs> Harper Cottons! <laughs> Harper Collins Study Bible! Wait, Sirach? Yeah. With, okay, with apocryphal deut- deuterocanonical books. So Wait. We'll be able to find Okay, it good. So it's apocrypha. Uh, there's a table of contents. Oh, there we go. I just passed Sirach. 20, book 4? Uh, chapter 20, verse 4. All right. Various sins. Ooh. Silence and speech. Go, lying. Go back to the sins. Like a eunuch, yet lusting to violate a girl is the person who does right under compulsion. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, there it is. Yeah. Oh, thanks, HarperCollins Study Bible. Yeah. So, anyway, for scripture says that a eunuch can deflower a virgin girl. He not only desires, he can actually have sex with a woman and ejaculate except his sperm is not capable of impregnating her. Please don't be put off by hearing about eunuchs. So, so too, I wanted to have sex with this boy and prayed that God strike me down with fire. God granted me a brief respite, and I managed to tell the man not to bring his son to my monastery anymore. But the enemy had imprinted the boy's visage in my mind and his image in my heart, and I was unable to suppress it through extreme fasting, prayer, and even self-flagellation. My penis was still inflamed and aroused and secreted that fluid that comes straight from the pits, polluting my thighs with that filthy moisture. Finally, God took pity on me and released me from this temptation. So, setting aside the whole, like, the boy was only, like, ten years old or whatever and his godson... It's kind of a touching, you know, like inner confession and psychology of like one man's struggles, you know, mm-hmm. to to live like a holy life and live according to the ideals that his tradition teaches him that he should, you know. To me that I mean that's that's kind of cool. You know, I I have this bad tendency of seeking out a lot of internet atrocity tourism and it's just <laughs> sort of touching really to know that even back then people were writing way too much about what their wieners wanted and it's not just a condition of contemporary forums. <laughs> yeah, there were the equivalents of uh Reddit and 4chan and everything else back in the medieval period. Yeah, that's that's going to make me feel better about the meteors really. <laughs> So anyway, that's a pretty straightforward account of temptation and denial, which feels like it could have been said by any medieval church ascetic, but to me feels all the more poignant because of the whole culture surrounding eunuchs and the stereotypes that are thrust upon them. I mean, that whole stereotype about eunuchs being especially lascivious and their celibacy not being good enough, they're always just going to be faking it, and him actually just trying to live up to the true ideals, but struggling with that, and maybe succumbing to some form of what we would now call stereotype threat. So, Kind of weird, though, because, again, you do have it from both angles, the pure sexless version and then the completely debauched version. It's sort of like... Mm-hmm. 
coming at you from two ends. What stereotype? And it just seems seems like it could be arbitrarily applied depending on who's looking at what given time. Exactly. And doesn't that always kind of happen when you have like a minority or like a like a view of a certain gender or something? Like like they're the virgin whore dichotomy or anything like that. Yeah. Where you're just like you're struggling to lead a unique full identity, but. You're like, well, if I if I do let's say something like this, they'll think I'm that extreme. If I do something like this, they'll think I'm that extreme. So fuck it, I'm just gonna do whatever, you know. Yeah. I pity the society you're not giving more stereotypes that I could get it from more sides. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so we have one story I want left. To be threatened by geese. <laughs> <laughs> no. We have one story left, and that is the Marilyn Monroe effect. Okay, so. This one kind of gives some context to round out our whole picture of sexuality in the Byzantine Empire. As we've seen in like past episodes, one of the reasons that eunuchs were trusted, especially around women, was because they could not cuckold you. That is, they couldn't, you know, have sex with your wife. Except that they could. But here's the thing. They couldn't knock her up. And so the cuckolding couldn't become public. And so, therefore, whatever went on behind closed doors, you could just be like, ah, ignore it. But you wouldn't become publicly known as a cuckold. And that was of supreme importance to Byzantine men, their reputation. Mm -hmm. That's the real thing. Now, the concern of Byzantine men over being cuckolded publicly is aptly demonstrated by snippets that we have here from a text from 990 called The Patria. In Constantinople, there was a certain hospital of Theophilus, which according to legend was originally built by Emperor Constantine as a large brothel, legally the only one in the city, and it was decreed that it was the only place women of ill repute could live. And become sexy nurses. And become sexy nurses. (laughs) Outside this brothel was a certain statue of Aphrodite that had a most peculiar power. Quoting now, The statue was a touchstone for chaste women and virgins, both rich and poor, who were held in suspicion. If someone defiled a girl's virginity, and many or few of them did not admit this, their parents and friends would say to them, Let's go to the statue of Aphrodite, and you will be tested as to whether you are chaste. (laughs) Yeah, Aphrodite was all about that chastity. When they approached the place below the column... If she was without blame, she passed by unharmed. But if she was defiled or her virginity destroyed, a sudden apparition would confuse her reluctantly and against her will as soon as they approached the column with the statue. And lifting up her dress in front of all, she would show her genitals to all. Later they would call this Theodora syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) So this is... Thing like where like you go by this statue and then it's like Marilyn Monroe on the blowing vent grate, oh. you know, where it like blows her skirt dream. up. Yeah. <laughs> so so is this just a feature of confusion and denial and repression and not being public about this, or does literally every woman who's married or has ever had sex have to hitch up her skirt whenever she walks past the statue? Hey, yeah. Oh, it's against their will. 
I know, but... Yeah, but logically, everybody who's been, you know, had their V-card punched, regardless of their marital status, it's like... Had <laughs> their V-card punched. Um, yes. So, it's interesting that you ask that, because there's another piece to this story that okay. addresses that very fact. So, this statue, wondrous as it was, was short-lived. For it apparently worked not only on those deliberately brought to the statue, but also on random passersby. Woo! Yes! <laughs> All right! So, quoting again, The sister-in-law of the former Kuropolites, Justin, smashed this statue, for her genitals too had been revealed when she had committed adultery and had passed by on horseback. Okay. So, I think the deal is, I don't think it's anybody who had their V-card punched. I think it was specifically if you're illegitimately punched. Right. So, adultery so, Adultery passes, or not... before marriage. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're just... Because if it was anyway, that's just a nuisance. Yeah. yeah that's I mean, quite a nuisance. Yeah. You're just, you're, you're walking out with your man talking and then it's like, oh, whoop, oh God, it happened again. <laughs> anyway, where are we going? Yeah, all the grandmas in the city that happened to go by that. And it's not, yeah. not really a sexy thing. Yeah, it's just... no, just a bunch of sexy grandmas just wandering around the streets <laughs> oh, by the God. sexy hospital. Yeah, that's not showing up on anybody's feed. <laughs> in any case... <laughs> One other thing that I just realized, um, going back uh, to this, the whole thing about there being a pagan goddess's statue in Christian Byzantium. Well, it wasn't. Well, it was Aphrodite. But it was in the reign of Constantine. Yeah, he was looting Rome for all the good stuff to put there. Good point. Serpent columns, he took a bunch of the Medusa heads. And it wasn't an official... Yeah. But... Um, so the thing I was going to say was, though, that I heard in Lor- Lars Brownworth's podcast, 12 Byzantine Rulers, mm-hmm. that when Constantine was doing all that looting of the pagan statues and bringing all that statuary to uh, Constantinople that he was creating as a Christian capital, he did all this crazy stuff like inverting the, the columns of the Medusa yeah, heads. Yeah. yeah, the Medusa heads and stuff to show that they didn't have any power. And I have to wonder, like, if this kind of silly, silly story, you know, was, you know, part of a further, it, like, the, the effacing of the holiness of the old gods might have been further reduced by bringing them down to this level of stupidness in popular culture. You did put her in front of a brothel, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, also it's like, there's a lot of people who have, like, weird resin statues of cupid or you know various greek gods that they got from a toscano catalog in their backyard and i mean who would never think that they're pagan or whatever so well that's you true but i want to think about what goes on in their hot dish orgies on their deck oh god but at this time in byzantine history there were still legit pagans still just completely out of the closet as pagans yeah so i mean so. on one hand you're sort of hedging your bets i mean constantine didn't even get baptized until his deathbed exactly and also you know it classes up the place not better than a resin aphrodite but but, right. you know, you know. Yeah. So in any case, believe it or not, this was not the only statue of such prodigious powers. There was also a bronze statue with four horns on its head, and it revealed something for men. Quoting again, If someone suspected that he was cuckolded, he would go there and approach the statue. If it was as he had assumed, the statue immediately turned around three times. <laughs> hmm. Awkward. If it was not as he suspected, it stood quietly, and in this way, the cuckolded men were revealed. (laughs) It's also kind of socially reassuring that the miraculous event only happens with the thing you don't want. (laughs) Sure. Like, 
assuming that statues don't go turning around and ladies don't hitch their skirts up in public all the time, uh-huh. the general assumption is you're a virgin and or your marriage is safe, not what the was other a, way around. It was a statue of a man or of a bull or... Uh, it didn't specify, but I assumed a man with four horns. Because we know that there's a significant bull statue that was bronze back in Rome that supposedly had that whole Narcisse connection. Uh, I don't know, maybe? I don't know. I just like that it spins around like, woo, 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 woo! Yeah. <laughs> So how far back does the whole horns metaphor go? Uh, ancient Egypt, at least. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's a symbol of cuckoldry. Yeah. Oh, that I don't know. Back to here, it sounds like, at least. Perhaps, yeah. At least. It's yeah. Back. yeah. So anyway, that gives you an idea of the fear of being cuckolded that motivated wealthy late Roman and Byzantine men to surround their womenfolk with those who were deemed safe to be around them, such as eunuchs. That kind of fills out the context for how we were saying that the whole eunuch thing got started in the first place in Roman culture. But you could get cuckolded by a eunuch. But could you? You could, but Uh they couldn't knock your wife up, Uh so it wouldn't become public, so it was much less risky. Yeah, but would you still go to the statue and what would its answer be? Yeah, I was wondering that too. Well, like, yeah. Does the statue care about your public reputation? It does only does one it half. About... It does a half turn. It doesn't do a full three. It's just a raised eyebrow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It shrugs. <laughs> I don't know. It's These weird folk tales are like that. You know, you just you, you start pulling them apart and of course they fall apart, right? But, you know. So anyway, I thought it was interesting and fun in the best way. <laughs> So things to actually do with the time machine. <laughs> did he, right. did he Some s- control group testing. Did he say where this statue was located, actually? In, um, in Constantinople? Not that one. Because I know there's a forum of the bull, I think, and I wonder if there was a statue that used to be there. Possible. I, wonder if I don't have that book from the library anymore, Sorry. so I can't cross-reference it for you. Antiquities of Constantinople. Yeah. In any case, there you go. That's sex in Byzantium. And that is the Sex in the City of our series. Nick and Anna, thank you once again for being on the show. There was a statue in the dog park of Constantinople. <laughs> and if you thought your dog had actually dug a hole in your yard, I was looking guilty and blaming it on the other dog. If you walked your dog past that statue, it would bark furiously. But if the dog were innocent... The dog is never innocent. There's always something a dog is guilty of. Anyway, folks, we will be back next time for the conclusion to our series on Byzantine court eunuchs, which will be an interview, an interview with not just anybody, but an interview with the man behind the History of Byzantium podcast, none other than Robin Pearson, who is going to talk to us about the hidden connections between eunuchs and the Viking bodyguards of the Byzantine emperor, the Varangian Guard. So it's going to be a tie-in, basically, between both this series and our Viking Berserker series. And we're going to get frickin' Robin Pearson on the show, so it's going to be great. So nice. A lot more members of the Varangian Guard were Moist than you'd think. Some of them were even Ben and Dante. Ajivica. We need to work the Ajivica in. Ajivica. Yes. Byzantine Tito connections. You can't hold uh, unique members in your hand without... I can't remember. <laughs> well, we're supposed could, to hold but... a mango? <laughs> yeah, a something? mango in one hand. And taking up with a potter's wife or something. <laughs> That's right. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Okay, folks. Uh, remember, uh, if you like what we're doing here, you can support us on Patreon 
at www.patreon.com forward slash dead ideas pod. $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period of culture of your choosing. You could be lascivious Constantinopolitan. I'll <gasps> draw you as lascivious as you like on a 1 to 10 rating. <laughs> draw yourself as finding out some terrible things about you as your your skirt is hiked above your head. Yes. <laughs> Please indicate your level of lasciviousness by the number of horns on the, on the statue that you write in with. Get a drawing of yourself covered with grain with geese advancing. <laughs> Yeah, the number of geese that are packing <laughs> grains off of your body. <laughs> anyway, I'll draw you as whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. That's it for today, folks. Thank you for listening. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. <laughs>